standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am never watching a YouTube recommended video ever again. I'm going to ask you why, partly because I care, but partly because I know it will segue into a lovely plug for a chops we've got coming up. Before the segue into that chops, I watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix, which is well worth a watch and we'll chat about in the next Outside the Box. But also Hannah and I chatted to Laura Bates about her book, which is brilliant but fucking depressing, called Men Who Hate Women. And YouTube is very much helping facilitate the misogyny and the misogynistic terrorism. Hello, Elsie. Hi, Els. She hates misogynists. I think you should leave her in because something I started to do at the weekend was finally listen to Alan Partridge's podcast, which isn't a podcast at all, obviously, on Audible. Although I think it was recorded pre-lockdown, he seems to have happily predicted that all podcasts now have a dog or a cat, like <laughs> batshit, in the back of them. He has a dog that's constantly barking in the back of it. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and this weekend I found my dream comedy audience. I need to know what this is about, please. So I went to see a friend of mine and her new baby. It's not new. It's about three months old, and he's absolutely lovely. I mean, all my friends' babies are lovely, but this one is particularly cute. I've seen photos, can confirm. I was holding him. I was with my friend that's his dad, and he was looking, the baby up at the wall just staring and I said what's he looking at and his dad said oh it's where the light is coming in the window and it's hitting something and it's bouncing off and it's causing a like another light to hit the wall and I said oh like cats right and he (laughs) he absolutely roared laughing and by that I mean the baby not the dad (laughs) right and everything I said for the next five minutes he was like ah a little shoulders going up and down I mean I've done gigs to one person before now but I've <laughs> not, I didn't get that reaction from it I was like this is what all comedians need now my friend needs to rent her out to all comedians who are missing it and just hold him up at the screen and they can talk to him and he can just piss himself laughing <laughs> it's a lovely story Later on, Hazel Davis chats to Michelle Rawlings, author of Women of Steel, which charts the story of the incredible Sheffield women who stepped up during World War II to keep the foundry fires burning. I speak to Dr Daisy Fankor about the COVID social studies snapshot of the nation in lockdown and what we can learn from it. And we ask, Jesus Christ (laughs) on a sticky bar, what did I just watch? As rated or dated, does Coyote Ugly. I can only apologise, Mick. I picked that one. But first, dead cats, too much charity and surprise, surprise. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we too believe that Oswald (laughs) Mosley was a melt and his supporters were fascist slags. I feel like I'm banged up. (laughs) What a joyous little 46 seconds that is. Thank you, Danny Dyer. (laughs) Let's talk about Donald Trump's recent comments on the peaceful transfer of power should he lose November's election. But before I do, to be clear... We are aware events are moving fast regarding Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. But much like the recent news that Paul Dacre might become the head of Ofcom and Charles Moore the head of the BBC, I'm not going to expend time and energy worrying about them until we have more solid information. Heaven knows there's enough to worry about already. 
And to be totally honest, the idea of Paul Dacre as the arbiter of any sort of moral compass hitting the news cycle at the same time that the country is heading towards a second lockdown, it couldn't be more of a dead cat if its final moments were spent scratching, look at this over here, (laughs) onto your forehead. And I've got to say, I'm glad Keir Starmer is taking the same approach. As you or the cat. (laughs) Yeah. So why am I talking about Trump when he himself is responsible for more dead cats than Joe Exotic? Well, if you get your US news from Twitter, which I'm guessing many of you do, given the paucity of space in our brains slash schedules for more potentially depressing news, you might only be getting the headlines. But given Twitter's tendency towards hyperbole, who said that? (laughs) You may be more worried about Trump's statements that he might not respect the results of the election than you need to be. Firstly, he'd be breaking the law and effectively conducting a coup. In fact, last week, the Senate unanimously passed a resolution reaffirming its commitment to a peaceful transfer of power. And even the usually meek and subservient GOP has been quick to try to reassure Americans. Now, I'm sympathetic to fears Trump may tarnish the reputation of the office of the president, as well as the opinion of America on the world stage, even more so than he already has. And I agree with statements such as this from presidential historian Douglas Brinkley, quote, this may be the most damaging thing he has ever done to American democracy. And I get that merely saying these things is incendiary, Mm -hmm. but it's worth bearing in mind that this might just be another verbal shitpost from a man who says a lot of crazy stuff that ultimately comes to sweet fuck all. More news as it happens. What I do want people to think about is something I heard recently from MSNBC's Steve Kornecki, in which he posited that the real danger to America's future wasn't Trump's failure to leave office, but his failure to leave the public arena. Traditionally, former presidents step back from public criticism of the incoming president. But, you know, presidents have traditionally not had public spats with Bette Midler. So it's all (laughs) very much to play for, as Trump would be free to unleash his very worst thoughts to his millions of Twitter followers. Which, if I'm honest, keeps me up at night more than the idea of him being dragged out of the Oval Office like Prince Andrew from a cutie screening. I mean, I kind of need to clean out my ears after that last sentence, but... It's fucking terrifying, mate. Yeah. Over here, in a surprising turn of events, a national poll has revealed that the belief Britain is a force for good in the world has plummeted in the last 18 months. (laughs) Just under half of Britons, at 49%, believe that Britain is a force for good in the world, which is down 10 points from April 2019. In further results, 41% of Britons say the UK should punch above its weight in world affairs, And the proportion who believe Britain should stop pretending it is an important power is up five points from last year to 38%. I fucking love the word pretending there. British exceptionalism. There we go. I must hasten to add that the only real surprise about this news is the tone of surprise with which it's been delivered by the mainstream media. Because really, who'd have thought constant lies, one of the world's most ineffectual tacklings of COVID-19 and blithely breaking international law could lead to this? Knock me down with a fucking feather. The polling was commissioned by the EU-UK Forum, a new organisation established in Brussels in an attempt to promote a close relationship between Britain and the bloc in the coming years. I I can only applaud the (laughs) EU-UK Forum for its optimism in even forming an order two of whatever it's having, please. I'm assuming it's a cocktail equal parts delusion, fervent prayers and meth. Look... (laughs) I don't know if at the end of the year we're going to crash out of the EU with no deal. No one does, but it wouldn't surprise me. 
And it's very much felt like even if this isn't what our esteemed leaders wanted exactly, they very much give zero fucks if it happens by accident. And by accident, I mean thanks to them unilaterally rewriting the terms of the withdrawal agreement in what ministers have admitted is a breach of international law and generally behaving like King Baby whizzing his tits off after too many jelly tops Mm -hmm. in every negotiation. And yet, Despite the row over the internal market bill in which the threat to breach the withdrawal agreement was made, optimism that a deal on a future relationship can be struck has been on the up in recent days and a summit of EU leaders on the 15th of October is seen by both sides as the crunch point by which time it will be clear whether common ground can be found on the outstanding issues. I'm going to hand over to Paul Adamson, chairman of the EU-UK forum, who said, presumably between sips of that aforementioned cocktail, the (laughs) polling shows that the vast majority of people think it is important for the UK to keep a close relationship with the EU despite Brexit, and only a minority wants to see the UK stepping back from the global stage. Since Brexit is a process, not a final destination... The EU-UK forum is being launched to facilitate and nurture constructive and informed dialogue between the UK and the EU. And we will very much keep you posted. I mean, I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. If Brexit's taught me anything, it's how annoying my habit of leaving absolutely everything to the very last minute (laughs) must be for everybody around me. All the people that ring up and say... Have you got your visa yet? Have you done? And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I should be in charge of what's going on in Brexit. Yes, please. It's a genuine offer. I absolutely will take you up on that. Yeah. I mean, I've heard there's some money involved. but (laughs) So just in case you somehow still have the impression that this country doesn't have its fair share of mad bastards, (laughs) let's take a wee look at the protests in Trafalgar Square at the weekend. And... I've been doing a bit of reading recently about the principle of charity. You'll know about this, Mickey. You did philosophy at university. A philosophical idea that, simplified, means that you should look at opposing arguments and try to give them the fairest crack of the whip possible. To question whether, if all these people genuinely believe this, that the problem might not be their thinking, it might be yours. So let's give that a go. Okay, I'm excited. These people... 16 of whom were arrested at the weekend, believe that COVID-19 is a hoax. Mm. Largely because they've not met anyone who died of it. I realise I've worded that badly because the chances of meeting someone who's died of it, but you all know what I mean. Yeah, I get it. And given I don't know anybody who has died of it either, I suppose there's a chance that this is all a huge conspiracy and that I am not, as I had hitherto thought, just lucky. Okay. Moving on. Many protesters, if their signs were anything to go by, believe that being made to wear a mask is an infringement on their civil liberties. And I suppose if you squint hard enough and forget the fact that there's a global pandemic on, or is there? (laughs) Oh, oh, she is. And the fact that covering your face in public is primarily done for the benefit of other people, just like covering your genitals in public, you could start (laughs) to see an argument for it. Fucking hell, I can feel the charity just spilling out of me like so much infected snot. I'm glad you've got your genitals covered. (laughs) I'm sitting down, Mick. You don't know. (laughs) Oh. People opposing lockdown and mask wearing also appear to believe that the government is doing a shit job and that right said Fred are a better (laughs) source of information on the current crisis. 
And full on loopty do though that sounds is actually the thing I could get most on board with. Instead of loopty do, you mean deeply dippy? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the government is doing a shit job. Why not listen to the people who bought us I'm Too Sexy? Fetch me a bit of cardboard and a big pen. Although, to be fair, I didn't actually vote for Johnson and Co. And I'm going to go ahead and make an ass out of you and me and say, I think most of those people did. Mm -hmm. Or didn't vote at all. Mm -hmm. Finally, they think that David Icke, a man that believes (laughs) that the Queen is part of a worldwide conspiracy of lizards, is some sort of oracle slash hero slash messiah. And well, I suppose you could say that if you take into consideration... No, I'm done. The charity well is dry. (laughs) Wear a fucking mask, people. (laughs) It was the lizards that undid her. Would you like a bit of good news, Hannah? Uh, is it that Lawrence Fox has started his own party? Oh, has he? What's it called? Tell me it's more. Called, it's called Reclaim, which sounds like more like a recycling initiative, I think. But it, yeah, apparently he has. What's he reclaiming? I don't know. I mean, it always goes well when somebody starts at another party. Look, look at our Prime Minister, Robert Kilroy Silk. Oh, yeah. I once went to a Halloween party and the theme was come as the thing that scares you the most. And my very small, beautiful female friend went as Robert Kilroy Silk. (laughs) It was absolutely terrifying. Did she orange up for it? She oranged up. We covered her in so much orange makeup. It was amazing. Um, But that's that's not the good news about Lawrence Fox. Although, you know, good luck to him. I've never been up for fox hunting before. This is the first time for everything. Instead... Over on Twitter, there is always a moment of panic when David Attenborough starts trending. You're like, oh, God, no, no, 2020, you've fucked with us enough, you raging spaff chimp. No, don't take Attenborough. But, and I am wiping the sweat from my brow now, the latest hashtag David Attenborough was merely because he's revealed. And I absolutely love how salacious that word feels, given what I'm about to say next. He has revealed that he spent most of lockdown listening to birds. I mean, of course he has. He's Sir David fucking Attenborough. I mean, I know, I know, I know. He means of the feathered variety, but to be honest, as a hashtag, listen to birds. I'm all behind it. Yeah, I mean, he's he's doing good without even realising it. That is yeah. the power of the big da. I'm sure you won't mind me calling him that. The 94 year old stone cold legend also found time to join Instagram last week and easily smash Jennifer Aniston's record for the fastest time to reach a million followers. I checked this morning and he's at 4.5 million now with just five posts to his name. Each of them is a delight, obviously, but also vital because he is continuing his tireless work to wake people up to the fact that we need to save the planet and we need to do it sharpish. And in more David Attenborough-based good news to that end, he also has a new Netflix documentary, A Life on Our Planet, out on October the 4th. That's this Sunday. And a book of the same name, which is published on October the 6th. Exciting. It is exciting. More of the big DA. And more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we start preparing for Halloween. I, for one, have an easier task this year, as it turns out that as a middle-aged white woman, I can just wear my face. Hmm? Los Angeles-based makeup artist Jason Adcock has designed a terrifying mask based on the very popular, indeed, Karen meme, telling Business Insider, I was starting on this year's Halloween projects and kept seeing Karens pop up in my newsfeed and thought, damn, this is the real monster of 2020. 
Hear that, COVID? Far-right extremists, ineffectual and downright dangerous governments? You are off the hook. We have found the real monster, and it's middle-aged white women. To be clear, I'm aware that Karen started as a pejorative term for an entitled, typically racist, white woman prone to loud complaining, a woman who uses her privilege to demand her own way at the expense of others. And yes, those people are knobs. And I say people because that kind of behaviour is absolutely not confined to women. But we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. This epithet, released into the wild, has become casual sexism, thrown at women willy-nilly. Karen is now just another way to tell women, particularly those who have had the fucking audacity to age, to shut up and stop taking up space, while at the same time massively undermining the racist roots of the term. Take, for example, Amy Cooper, who called the New York City police earlier this year, claiming that a black male birdwatcher was threatening her. A Karen in its truest sense, she's now just lost in a sea of Karens. And seriously, if misogyny is what you had in mind to dress up as for Halloween, just put a witch's costume together. All you need is a bin bag, a straggly hairdo and a pointy hat. And, you know, I'm working from home, so apart from the hat, I'm pretty much wearing that now. (laughs) Times are tough. That mask is $180. Save yourself a bit of cash, mate. Now then, I would like to speak to Adcock's manager, please. The Karen thing just drives me mad because women who pointed out that it was sexist were really hammered online for saying it mm-hmm. and now that has been proven i think to be true and the irony is as i can only speak for myself here but as someone who falls smack bang into the category of karen as it gets used which is middle-aged white woman yep i can't imagine anything fucking worse than asking for the manager i eat food that's cold i eat food that wasn't what (laughs) i ordered even though i hate it because i've i've worked behind bars for years and i've worked in restaurants for years and it's horrible when people start screaming at you so i just don't do it to people exactly that i'm nodding again great for a podcast but i'm nodding All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. 
With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixter Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspire Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Daisy Fancourt, Associate Professor of Psychobiology and Epidemiology at University College London. And one of the team working on the recent COVID social study. Thank you for joining us, Daisy. It's a pleasure. I'm actually, I'm very excited to talk to you because I'm one of those people who seems able to separate emotion and cold hard fact. And when lockdown happened, I kept thinking to myself, this is the most interesting social experiment that's been conducted since the Americans tried to ban alcohol. When something like this happens in your position, do you look at things like that? Are you able to separate your own fears and insecurities and worries? Yes, as a scientist, that's really what you have to do all of the time. Of course, this was quite an unusual situation in that we were all living through it. So whereas some of the things that I'm used to studying in research, for example, loneliness in older adults is something where I'd only have personally a secondhand connection to that through knowing people in that position. Whereas with this pandemic, because we were all in it, it did make it a bit of a challenge when we were trying to design the research questions to make sure that we weren't just reflecting our own personal experiences or worries. And so we consulted very widely with lots of different people about what factors we thought were going to be affecting them so we could make it a really comprehensive study. Actually, 72,000 participants took part in this. How do you go about ensuring you get a good cross-section of society? I would say particularly when the elderly are perhaps the most difficult to reach in the situation of lockdown. That's a really good consideration that we put a lot of thought into. So we advertise the study generally through research networks or social media or the media, but that typically picks up a certain demographic. So, for example, women are much more likely to respond that way. So what we also did is we worked in partnership with some organisations who were able to help us reach, for example, men, so that we were able to increase the sample and also to reach other groups who might be less likely to engage, including older adults, including people of lower educational attainments. And we also wanted to make sure we had really good spread across the entire UK. So we worked with all the mutual aid groups around the UK to get the message out to people in the communities. And then we did a lot of partnership work with organisations representing vulnerable people, such as people who were experiencing domestic abuse or people with existing mental health conditions. So what we then did is with all of these data, we had very good numbers across every subgroup, but we were then statistically able to weight our sample so that it ended up matching the proportions of the UK population. I was one of the people that filled this out. And every time I filled it out, I thought, I'm not sure if I'm being helpful here because I have that very Pollyanna approach. So I haven't seen anyone I know for ages. I'm living by myself. And then the question, how do you feel? I go, yeah, all right, I suppose. How do you accommodate for that, for the sort of mustn't grumble British attitude? Well, it's not so much accounting for that. It's recognising that's how some people are experiencing this. There's no right or wrong way for people to be finding this period. And as you say, some people were very much able to carry on or they were able to rationalise it in their minds. But what we're seeing there is a particular type of coping strategy that you and many others were employing. 
So one of the things we've now been doing in our research is looking at how different coping strategies were linked in with different trajectories of mental health. And there certainly seem to be different patterns depending on how people were able to cope with things in those early weeks of lockdown. Your big finding, I suppose, was, and although it might not seem that surprising, was that COVID didn't affect us all equally and that lockdown didn't affect us all equally. There were different experiences by age, by socioeconomic group, by race. Personally, the one I found surprising in that was the age category because you found that young people were actually more anxious than older people. And my guess would have been up until that point, given that old people are more likely to live alone and given that old people are more susceptible to COVID and perhaps being killed by COVID, that they would be the group that was the most anxious, but they weren't, were they? No, and this is, of course, one of the reasons it's so important to do research, because a lot of people hypothesise the same thing, that we had to worry the most about the older adults and their mental health. And in fact, it was the opposite. Now, in a way, this actually wasn't that surprising because we know that mental health tends to be worse in younger adulthood anyway. But we also knew that younger adults were most likely to be affected by adversities in this time. So losing their job, losing their home, being evicted, not being able to pay household bills. And also lots of young people also live alone or live in accommodation that's temporary or shifting or their students in halls. So from that perspective, it wasn't that surprising that they were having the toughest time. But I think also, I think it highlights a certain resilience amongst many older adults in the UK that perhaps with the benefits of a bit of experience, life experience and hindsight, being able to perhaps rationalise these kinds of events more because you've simply experienced yeah. highs and lows over the years more than someone, for example, who's 20 years old. Yeah, that is a very good point. In fact, I, I know quite a few people who have said to me that what made this experience easier for them was that an experience they'd had in the last couple of years say for example the death of a parent or losing their job that having gone through that they felt they'd been toughened up for this that said you did find that in the socio-economic groups obviously the the poorer you are the harder it was for you but it was also made harder because you were aware of what poverty was and therefore you knew what was coming for you if your job was being lost. Could you talk a little more about how socioeconomic groups were affected by lockdown? Mm -hmm. This was another one where we were really keen to do some research because we actually, we, we knew instinctively that this was not going to be a case of all in it together, no matter how much that kind of motto was repeated in, in the media. And what we found was that people from lower socioeconomic groups were actually hit three times over. They were more likely to worry about adversities such as losing their job, which, as you say, could well be from past experience of knowing how bad it can be. But they were also more likely to actually experience those things. So in a way that their, their worries were justified mm -hmm. because they were the group who were most likely to experience these kinds of adversities. And at the same time, we actually found that the relationship between these worries and these experiences on mental health was stronger for people from lower socioeconomic position. So it meant that not only were you worrying more and experiencing worse things, but these things were actually affecting you even more than for someone who had more financial resources. So this really highlighted for us that it wasn't just a case that we had a, a social gradient, as we often talk about it in experiences, but that gradient was widening and really being exacerbated by the pandemic. Can I ask you about gender? Was that something you looked into? Were Again, I'm going to make an assumption and say that in many ways women were better placed to cope with this than men. 
But that said, many women found themselves in a situation where they were being simultaneously full-time workers and full-time mothers, which obviously mm-hmm. caused a great deal of anxiety. What sort of factors were, were causing stress for women? Well, in fact, the findings on women and women are rather fascinating. So we found that at the start of lockdown, women's mental health was worse than men's. Now, this isn't necessarily a surprise because we know that this is often the case in, in mental health research. But actually, over the strict lockdown period, so particularly the first kind of 12 weeks of lockdown, women's mental health got better faster than men's did. So this suggests one of two things, or perhaps a combination of two things, one of which is that we know many women actually had even tougher experiences at the start of lockdown for the reasons you've mentioned, like juggling childcare, homeschooling and work. But there was also another potential explanation here that women might have been better at adapting and coping Mm. with this as it did happen and perhaps establishing routines or a sense of normality which might have helped them in their faster recovery over those weeks. As someone who lived on my own throughout lockdown and I have to say as a group we were I think probably the most ignored group in the whole country. The first time people who lived on their own were mentioned was when lockdown started to ease and Boris Johnson said thank you to old people who lived alone for their sacrifice and still not to the (laughs) rest of us. How have my fellow single people been faring during lockdown? So we found that for people living alone, many aspects of lockdown were harder. So we saw that there were higher levels of depression in people living alone, not just older adults, but broader age ranges. But interestingly, we actually found that this group were not more likely to feel anxious. They actually responded with the same level of anxiety as other people. They were exhibiting the same kinds of concerns over the virus. But I think something else that emerged here is that sometimes people who were living alone faced other kinds of barriers. Like there was more barriers, for example, around access to food during that Mm. early supermarket rush. I guess because if you weren't able to go yourself, you didn't necessarily have someone who could go and do those chores for you. Same thing with access to medication. And when we looked at uh, barriers to accessing healthcare across the pandemic, we saw that there were more barriers in this group as well. So I think what we might have here is, and we're exploring this further at the moment with telephone interviews, is perhaps lots of invisible barriers that haven't really been discussed much in the media yet, but that were causing real challenges for people who were on their own across this time. Oh, absolutely. Like I say, I, I felt we were very ignored by society, but we always are. So I think in many ways, this what I love about this study is it's kind of reinforced a lot of my ideas about about how society treats certain groups of people. There was a group, wasn't there? Small though they were, there was a group that reported that they actually enjoyed lockdown. Can we hear a bit more about them? Yes, you can. <laughs> I guess it was always inevitable that for some people this was going to actually be the best period of their time. For example, people who are more introverted or people who are very self-sufficient. And actually, we saw that older adults were more likely to find this period a positive one, potentially because if you've already retired, then perhaps the idea of spending more time in your home is something that you're more used to as a concept. Maybe you've got more hobbies, you're not facing as many stresses. But I think the thing that did come across quite strongly was that in general, the people who were finding this a better time were those who had more financial resources and more social resources around them. In other words, they simply weren't facing the same levels of worries or adversities or or challenges 
that other people were facing. I may be wrong, but you may, you may be able to answer me. In the people that I've spoken to, sort of anecdotally, friends, etc., the people who continue to work and worked from home were actually doing better because they re- had structure to their day. People I knew who were furloughed mm-hmm. were a bit in the wind of what to do with their day every day because they just had to find ways to fill it. I know, and I think this is a tricky one because I think some initially there was this uh, huge social media outpouring of use this time yeah. to write your novel or to learn a language or take up a hobby. And actually, I think it's not necessarily as easy as that. I think, of course, if you had homeschooling and things with kids, then you certainly weren't going to have that level of time. But also, I think psychologically, if people decide to take a sabbatical in their career, then they normally plan a lot of things they're going to do, places they're going to go, what people they're going to see. And the lockdown removes a lot of our leisure choices from us, which meant that it wasn't necessarily the the rosy holiday that a lot of people expected it was going to be in those early weeks. What lessons do you think that we have learned from this? I'm particularly interested in the statistic that, uh, that you unearthed, that the less people complied with the rules, the happier they were. Which I can see a logic in, because if the if the compliance was you can't go and see anyone, and then you just broke the rules and went to see someone because perhaps you just couldn't bear the idea of being on your own anymore. What have we learnt that possibly going into another lockdown that would make people happier? I think with the happiness issue, actually, we found that generally happiness seems to be predicting compliance, um, not just right. the other way around. So in other words, people who were feeling happier didn't feel they needed to break the rules as much, which makes sense because if you were feeling self-sufficient at home and you were actually finding it okay, you might not have needed to go and do wider activities. But I think as we look forward to, to new lockdowns, I think there are different levels of things that we need to think about, one of which is at an individual level, we'll all have learnt the things that helped us to cope and didn't help us to cope in first lockdown. So I think hopefully all of us have got slightly greater coping resources that we can draw on. I think, second of all, we've seen that one lockdown can pass. So I think it'll hopefully help that people will know that this next lockdown will be able to pass if we have to face something similar again. But I think it's also not just about individuals changing their mentality, because that puts a lot of pressure on people Mm -hmm. at a really difficult time. So actually, one of the things we're trying to stress is the importance that government's taking responsibility for this. And actually, given that a lot of people's stresses are around things like finances and work, It's reassuring that there's now been a new package of furlough options that are now being unveiled. And I think it's going to be crucial that that kind of support continues to be provided. But I also think we have to have more resource going into mental health services because lots of people couldn't get support during lockdown when they normally would have been able to. And I know there's now a backlog of people who want psychological support. And it's really crucial that we still have all of that available. In addition to things like Samaritans and other helplines, we need to make sure that the NHS has what it needs to help people out with their mental health. Are you able to extrapolate anything about our physical health from it? Are we exercising less? Are we eating more? Are we drinking more? Absolutely. There's been emerging research on this recently. So, for example, there are concerns that people are drinking more than normal and the level of problem drinking has gone up. Of course, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that as we go into second lockdown, because it's possible that some people have sort of had a super summer of trying to enjoy the restrictions and and things like that. But I think generally the pattern is that some people, it's things have got worse and some people things have got better. And this, again, comes down to individuals and to their own coping resources and their own experiences during lockdown, the levels of stresses they were feeling. So it really has polarised things from, from a physical health perspective. We're doing more research at the moment on things like smoking 
and uh, alcohol and substance abuse and exercise. So we're going to have even more findings on this soon. But I think that, that this sort of key thing coming out of this is that there's not just been a one pattern for the country. Mm. It really has been driven by those individual circumstances. So bearing in mind that we are about to, well, potentially go through the whole thing again. Are you going to continue your study? And if you are, how can people get involved? Yes, we are continuing the study. We've recently switched from being weekly uh, 10 minute surveys to being monthly 10 minute surveys, which we hope will be slightly less of a burden as we head into the next few months. Um, But we definitely want to continue it across the second lockdown because we've got two purposes with this study, one of which is around scientific papers that will really help us understand in depth what's happening and why and why people are responding this way. But the second thing is we also provide data every single week to governments, to World Health Organization, the NHS, Public Health England, and hundreds of other organizations. So this information is vital so they can see where the challenges are, what people are feeling, and what what things they need to address and provide support Mm. for. So if people want to take part, they can go to our website, which is covidsocialstudy.org. And you can also see all of our results and sign up for monthly newsletters so you can stay up to date with what we're finding fantastic people should because i mean i knew i was going to find it fascinating and then i sat and read it and i i definitely did i think it's a really valuable photograph essentially of the country in one of the weirdest times that we've we've ever been through well we're so grateful to everyone who's so generously taken part as well because that's what's allowed us to have such great data Thank you very much for your time, Daisy. This has been really, really interesting. Thank you, Hannah. So I'm Hazel Davis and I'm speaking to Michelle Rawlins, author of Women of Steel, out in headline books. Uh, So hi, Michelle. Hello, lovely to meet you and chat. Lovely to meet you. So your book is is all about the amazing women of the Sheffield Steel industry that kind of stepped up during the Second World War. Tell me what they did and why their story is so extraordinary. So these women, well, they are extraordinary. Obviously, I will cheerlead for them till my heart's content. But <laughs> they basically were the women who were almost left behind when the men went off to war, World War Two in Sheffield. And they suddenly there was a mass need for women in the steelworks. Now, women had worked in the steelworks in World War One, So it wasn't the first time they'd done this, but... World War II, they did it on a much bigger scale. So they filled the boots of the men who'd gone off to war. Um, and obviously the, the orders were increased because they were making munitions and spitfires and parts for tanks. So the, the orders were increasing, so they needed more workers. And it was the women that filled those roles and took on the jobs that the men left behind, really. It was like nothing they'd ever experienced before. Many of the women described it to me as hell on earth. They walked into hell when they walked into those factories. But their initial shock was soon overtaken by this real camaraderie between the women and the real strong desire to not only do their bit, but to stick together and get their men folk through the war. They felt that by making these weapons or parts for Spitfires and tanks, they were keeping their men safe. So it was a real desire to help brought on by this, we're going to get our men home and we're going to get them home safely. So they never complained, despite how horrific their working lives were. 
But because they never complained, I mean, they, they, it just seems like they never got the recognition that they deserved at all. Because when the men came back, then they got their dolls back and they, their, their contribution was kind of largely discarded, wasn't it? It was never spoken about. Many of the women got their um, sort of notice in a wage packet saying, this is it, we don't need you again next week. You know, the men are home, they're going to take their jobs back. Obviously, once the war finished, for them, they had a bigger job in some ways because their husbands or their dads or their brothers were very broken men when they came home from war. So their job then was to look after the men who came back. So their job sort of went from working in the steelworks to then looking after the men that came home. And obviously, a lot of the young women then fell pregnant and had babies, and that became their role. They just didn't talk about what they did and the significance of it. As time went on, they would tell family members how difficult it was and what a testing time it was, as well as the good times that they had. But it was never really recorded or documented. Obviously, men came back from war, statues were erected, monuments were erected, medals were given out. But the women's contribution was just sort of forgotten about. I don't even think so much it was brushed under the carpet. It was just literally forgotten. It wasn't noted down anywhere. I mean, there's still not even any records of how many women worked in the factories. The the records disappeared or they got destroyed. I think the best way of describing it, one of the ladies who started the campaign was, we we were forgotten like yesterday's fish and chip paper. Oh my gosh. And so tell me about the campaign then. How did you come to hear of the campaign and when did it start and who was the kind of woman behind this? So the campaign started in 2009 when the lead woman of Steel, as she's now known, Kathleen Roberts, Mm -hmm. phoned the Sheffield Star because she'd, um, she'd been complaining to her daughters that the land girls were getting all this recognition and being invited to Buckingham Palace for tea parties and, you know, documentaries were being made about them. They were across the front pages of newspapers. And she was just getting cross, I suppose, that the women who worked in the factories were getting no recognition at all. And, you know, in her mind, they were equally as significant working under such horrendous conditions So she kept saying to her daughters, Linda and Julie, I I just can't believe we've been forgotten. (laughs) And they just said, well, Mum, you've you've got to do something then. If it's annoying you that much, you've got to do something. And so we rang the Sheffield Star and said, I might have a story for you if you're interested. And um, said to them, you know, what about all those women that worked in the steelworks along the River Don in Sheffield during World War II? We've never been thanked. And she put the phone down and sat on her stairs and burst into tears, assuming she'd just made an absolute fool of herself. But obviously she hadn't. And the next day they sent Nancy Fielder, who is now the editor of the Sheffield Star, to go and interview Kathleen. And, you know, Nancy and I have talked a lot about this initial conversation where they sat and shared tea and biscuits, or I think it might have been flapjacks. And, you know, Nancy was just so stunned by the stories and overwhelmed and sort of humbled by what these ladies had done she obviously went back to her news desk told the editor and that's where the campaign for recognition began they ran this big campaign then in the Sheffield Star to have these women thanked and and they were you know they were taken down to Downing Street and they were thanked by Gordon Brown they chose four ladies to represent all the women of steel Sadly, Kathleen's the only lady out of the four that's still alive now. 
And this big campaign started, they were thanked, and then they decided that the city of Sheffield decided, well, we need to do something more. They need to be permanently immortalised within the city. And they began a campaign to have a monument commissioned and erected at Barker's Pool outside the City Hall, which is where a lot of the ladies used to go dancing on a Saturday night. Um, and But that took a long time. That took six years because it was going to cost £150,000. And the rule was that this wasn't going to be paid for by a big business. It wasn't going to have plaques around. It's sponsored by businesses. This was going to be a monument from the city of Sheffield to these women. Mm. So it was lots of small fundraising events at first. There was, you know, tea parties and raffles and... They brought back the, the Sheffield Mile Walk. There was lots of those events. And then John Palmer got involved, who was a big fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And he arranged the two concerts that really got it going and brought the money in. So they had lots of Sheffield artists come and perform at the City Hall in this really huge concert. And then they had a big folk concert as well. And that's what raised the money. Um, And it also gave them enough left that any woman of steel could apply for a little medallion that would be a permanent thank you to them via the council. So as well as the the monument, they would all get a medal each that, you know, could live on within their families. And that finally, it was June 2016 when the monument was finally unveiled. The monument was commissioned and built by a man called Martin Jennings, a sculptor. Uh And the women were incredibly funny because, you know, these things don't happen overnight. Sculptors have a a waiting list. (laughs) Go down to his workshop and he'd show them like a a little miniature marquette of the statue and they would be nagging him saying, well, you need to get a move on because we'll not be here to see it. We'll be too old. (laughs) tremendous pressure to get this sculpture built and thankfully you know on the day there was many many of the women of steel there to see their statue unveiled and they were dancing in the street and there was music and you know it's such a lovely occasion for them that 70 years on they've got the recognition that they deserve oh wow and having their stories kind of written down in your book that that must be quite an emotional process going through these stories of these women it must have changed how you felt about it I mean, I started my research in probably the start of 2018, maybe the end of 2017. It came about because I'd seen another article in the Sheffield Star about the women. And I I Googled it to see if there was a book on them. Because I thought, oh, you know, I'd really like to read that and learn a bit more. Because I'd followed their campaign so closely. And, you know, I live in Sheffield. My husband's from Sheffield. I I just felt it was something that we we should have, you know, and pass down to our children. And there was nothing. There'd been some local... The Sheffield Star had produced these sort of booklets on the Women of Steel, but there was no national book on them. So I spoke to Nancy again and said, you know, would you mind if I started doing some research? You know, I don't want to step on your toes. And she was like, no, no, please do it. I don't want these women to be forgotten about. And, and that's where my research began. And I began interviewing some of the women that were still alive. Those that weren't, I managed to contact their families and such lovely, lovely stories from family members, the women themselves. And, and you know, then I pitched it 
via my agent to the publishers and thankfully got commissioned so my research hadn't gone to wreck and ruin really um, and and it was lovely because then you know we got the commission and I started writing up all my interviews and and that's how it all came about. And it's, a, it's a really lovely evocative the, the, the bits of it I've read are just really evocative and lovely and you kind of got the sights and the smells and the sounds and it's kind of like you're there is that because you just got to know the women so well their stories so well that you I think so I think and also when and their relatives told me this as well. When I interviewed them, I, I wanted, obviously, to capture those moments, you know, step back in time and be there with them as much as I could. Mm. Their relatives would often say to me, we've not even heard some of these stories. So wow. they would sit in on the interview and record the interviews because oh. they were like, you know, we've we've asked mum or we've asked Gran and she tells us little bits at a time, but we never get the full story. And I think what happened is for a long time, their lives got busy and then they just felt, well, it was a long time ago. We don't need to talk about that anymore. But I think as they got older and obviously the campaign began and went as well as it did, I think they suddenly realised if we don't tell these stories now, they really are going to be forgotten. No one's going to record them. No one's going to write them down. And then our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, will never really know what the women of Sheffield did mm. in the war to support the war effort and, you know, sort of set a legacy for future generations. So I think when I started interviewing them, they, they they had all these thoughts in their minds and they really wanted to tell me everything. I mean, I would sit with some of these women for four or five hours and mm. we just talked and talked and drank tea and ate biscuits. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> it was just lovely. They really did transport themselves back in time to the moment and as much as you can envisage them in their factories doing those jobs and there's so many funny stories as well as heartbreaking stories and so many stories of courage and the camaraderie was a massive theme how they kept up morale it was really wonderful to to listen to them and I could have just sat there for hours if not days just you know recording their stories because they they were so lovely and I think there's a lesson for us all to learn that we really should ask our elderly relatives more about their past because they actually once they start talking they really want to tell you so it it was a lovely process doing the interview. It makes you wonder how many other stories have been similarly kind of brushed under the carpet doesn't it how many contributions. It really does and because I mean I've been very fortunate and managed to get a triple book deal on the back of Women of Steel I'm still interviewing women. Nice plug go for it. (laughs) These women are still coming forward now telling me you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've interviewed another two women who didn't know about my book when I was doing the research, hadn't heard that somebody was writing a book about them. So I'm interviewing them now so I can take their stories forward to future books. So what are the next books then? Give yourself a good plug for what's coming. Well, I'm very, very fortunate. Um, HQ Stories, which is um, an imprint of HarperCollins, um, commissioned three novels based on the women of steel so it's a saga series based on the women of steel but obviously it's fiction as opposed to non-fiction but it's, it's historical fiction so it's all embedded in factual history but it means I can take their stories to the next level now and 
I knew I couldn't forget about them. I knew I couldn't finish Women of Steel mm. and that was it. I, there was something that made me think, I've got to do something else with them. I don't know what. I, mm-hmm. You know, I at, could I do a PhD? Could <laughs> I do another non-fiction based on another element of their wartime experiences? So when I was approached by um, Katie Seaman at HQ with this proposal, I was just delighted, really, because I just thought, well, I can they can live on now in another format. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. Give us a plug for where we can buy the book now and where we can find you. Women of Steel can be bought on Amazon, Tesco's and in all brilliant independent bookstores. And I have got an author page on Facebook called um, Michelle Rawlings Author. And I'm on Twitter at mrawlings1974. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah Dunleavy, explain yourself. God, I'm so sorry. I thought it might be fun, but it was dreadful. We watched 2000s romantic musical comedy drama is what Wikipedia calls it. And I've got a problem with all of those words. (laughs) (laughs) Not least because it wasn't funny in the slightest. Coyote Ugly, produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, which might be all you need to know really, uh, directed by David McNally, starring a lot of people that, I don't know, I didn't really know who they were, apart from John Goodman. This has to be the worst film that's ever had John Goodman in it. Oh, no, actually, Maria Bello. I, I recognised her from ER. Also, Piper Peribo, Adam Garcia, and Tyra Banks, who I have actually heard of. It got mixed reviews at the time, which is a way of saying not great ones, but was like a massive box office success and has gone on to become a cult favourite amongst people who I I don't... I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. No, uh, I don't so I think that's thinking would talk. be generous. Bruckheimer described this as being about female empowerment, <laughs> um, uh, leading me to decide that this film was like third wave feminism, the musical. <laughs> that's unfair to third wave feminism. The more wilder aspects of third wave feminism, the musical, as well as just a shameful waste of Jim Bean. Oh my God, that bar. It is such a terrible business model. It's a waste of booze and a health and safety nightmare. Yeah, well, we'll also get to that. I think from what I read, part of the explanation for why it's popular is because when it was made in the year 2000, it had that optimism of a new century. You know, the economy was good in America. September the 11th hadn't yet happened. So I wonder whether the people who like it like it because it's sort of nostalgic of New York in a pre-September the 11th world, maybe. I would say the only major dent it's made in popular culture is probably the song Can't Fight the Moonlight, which is a song. And we'll leave that at that. (laughs) (laughs) You've actually seen this before, Mick. I think I was one of the reviewers. I did a little bit of memory trawling and it was when I was working for the Lads Mag I started my journo career on at Later. And I think I was sent to review this, this honey pie, <laughs> Coyote Ugly. I remember saying that Piper Parabo, is that how you say it? Piper Parabo, who is Parabo, I don't Violet, know. the main character, Violet Stanford, that she was actually probably one to watch. And you know what? For a shoddy script, she does give it a role. But I've thankfully forgotten what I wrote. But I imagine I had to be more glowing than I intend to be today. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll be one of those things that will come back to haunt you. Um, At the Cambridge News, where I used to work, 
there was famously someone sent to review the Beatles when they appeared at Cambridge Corn Exchange and said uh, they were going nowhere <laughs> uh, and was never allowed to forget that review. On yeah, that note, my pal Mark Sutherland, who is a very good muso journalist and in fact edited Melody Maker and Billboard magazine and various things, when he was a baby journalist, he got sent to watch Beethoven 2 about the big dog and he hated it and said as much in the review but he did make the rookie error of writing if you liked Beethoven you'll love this which they put on billboards with his name on it (laughs) (laughs) yeah they clamped down on that recently and I say recently it was within the last decade Mm -hmm. they clamped down on taking words out of reviews out of context because people used to say this is a spectacular mess and then see their name with the <laughs> spectacular. word spectacular uh, let's do the plot as it as it stands which is pretty weak violet the main character she leaves new jersey for new york she's making a journey of 42 miles okay. and i i mentioned that because i want to say that the dialogue is shit in this i would like to agree primary example yes, of it rather than try and attempt to prove that she is small town in her character what they have is describing that she's from such a small place that 42 miles seems a long way whereas anybody in the normal universe would have gone she's going to new york yeah, may, may i ask um, how old you thought she was supposed to be hannah early 20s yeah, I would yeah say. i thought so too so i i really feel shortchanged by how my mum reacted when i moved to london because they're all like, oh, God, no, don't leave. You've got to stay here. And, like, her dad gets, John Goodman, her dad gets really stroppy. And my mum, like, okay, even shortchanged by how my mum reacted when I went to Sheffield. Like, seriously, she just dropped me off and foot off to Kenya for two weeks. It was, there was none of this crying into their pillow malarkey. When I went to university, I told them the date I needed to go to university. By them, I mean my parents. And they probably booked <laughs> a holiday. And I had to move there by myself on a train. Yeah. What did um, we do yeah. wrong, Hannah? I don't know. My dad did come and collect me from university and bring it up in every conversation we ever had. <laughs> anyway, moving on. She wants to be a songwriter. Her mother had wanted to be a musician or a songwriter uh, and never made it. So it's like this inherited dream. She goes off to New York, very wide-eyed, uh, almost immediately starts speaking entirely in a baby voice. Um, <laughs> in fact, I find everything about Violet's personality to be genuinely nauseating. I find it amazing you've described it as a personality, mate. <laughs> <laughs> she goes to an open mic night, but she's so insipid uh, and that <laughs> she has stage fright and has to run off. She runs off, she discovers her house has been burgled, she meets a bloke. She also encounters some women who appear to be making money. She thinks they must be prostitutes. They're not. Turns out that they actually work in a bar called Coyote Ugly. They describe themselves as coyotes. She later describes herself as a coyote. Everybody always says, what's a coyote? And the answer is, they're the people who bring people across the border in Mexico. And I kind of wish that's what this film had been about. (laughs) Because she goes there, she gets herself a shift. She has a bit of a hard time. But then it's all all right. She starts working there. Her dad finds out. He's pissed off at her. Adana, adana, onwards and upwards. End of the line of this story is she writes Can't Find the Moonlight. Leanne Rhymes records it. Everybody's excited. She gets together with the very first man she encounters in New York. So obviously she's lived her life there to the full. And she later sells her dad for money. 
Um, <laughs> I think it's worth noting just before you carry on, Hannah, that the very last line of this film is, and I shit you not, what do you do when all your dreams have come true? Watch Coyote Ugly, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I hated it, but I've been talking for ages. So let me pick a topic and we can talk about it. Let's talk about whether or not you would ever drink in that bar. Because I'm thinking that bar could only happen in America. Because no fucker gets served at that bar. In in England, people are going, get down off their love. Get down off <laughs> I their love and beer. just serve me a fucking pint. Exactly that. Well, Hannah, I'm going to blow your mind in telling you that this is based on a true story of a real bar in America what Uh uh-huh it's true and horrific just like everything else we can see out of our window right now uh yeah it actually exists but i totally agree one of my notes just says yeah there's a lot of thirsty people in that bar (laughs) there's a lot of thirsty people they keep setting fire to it as well that just seems like very risky business yeah absolutely a lot of it reminded me of sex in the city i have to say i don't know which came first to be honest i don't know whether this is inspired by sex in the city or sex in the city is inspired by this sex in the city came first it was 90s but the trying lots of clothes on in a montage dancing around and posing was the most sex of the city thing i'd ever seen in my life i couldn't agree with you more uh, they bloody love a montage this film is basically a montage of dance routines weird drink serving techniques and other montages <laughs> that's all it is right i really need to stress how much whiskey is wasted in this film so it much made whiskey. me slightly tearful she drops at least 12 tea bottles when practicing yeah. various spin techniques also the stereotyping of women who are the kind Coyotes. We've got a kindergarten teacher, a bitch, a tease, and a black woman. And she she's mm. she's lost pretty quickly. Tara Banks says goodbye pretty quickly. Would I drink in that bar? Well, the answer would be no, because I don't think it is a bar designed for women, apart from when it wants to make a point about women. And suddenly, from being an absolute wang fest, it is filled <laughs> to the brim with women chomping at the bit to climb on that bar and take their bras off. Bras are fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you climbed on the bar and took your bra off, Hannah Dunleavy? Oh, it's got to be at least Thursday, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. I thought you were yeah. going to say March, so I'm impressed that you've left the house. So I was curious about the selling of men that happens. On two occasions, she sells um, Adam Garcia. her boyfriend mm-hmm. and her dad. Yeah. Question, what were those women buying? It felt very much like they were probably buying some sex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I mean, which is probably as as a better question than my. Where did all those women come from in this bar full of men? Yeah, Uh, yeah. unless they're having a a man auction, there are no women there. And then they just literally pop out of cupboards. Hello, seriously? (laughs) They were all in the queue. They were all in the queue for the toilet, and then suddenly they came back. (laughs) (laughs) I have written down in my notes. uh, Okay, I have questions. Actually, it's just one question repeatedly. What is this? What is it? (laughs) I've got two things written down that made me laugh on this. One of them says $250. Does he fuck her? <laughs> and the other thing I've written down is really early. I've written, I will survive, slash, three minutes, slash, I fucking hate this. <laughs> so when I was watching it and I will survive started, I said, how has Hannah Dunleavy got past this point without gouging her ears out? <laughs> like, I didn't know that you would make it. Actually, no, that's not fair. And you would make it to the end because you're a consummate professional. But I felt bad for me and bad for you. And I think you've lost Gary as a friend now. He's quite cross. <laughs> I'm sorry. At one point, sorry. Uh, Violet says, it's not as bad as it looks. And I don't think a human has ever been more wrong <laughs> about anything. 
Exactly. Right, okay. So I did actually, there was one moment that I thought, I wish in some ways I'd seen this before now. Because if I had known that all it takes to stop carnage is to stand on a bar and sing karaoke, the amount of times in my life that might have become useful. (laughs) Yeah, again, I refer to my notes. It says, it's well known that a woman doing karaoke stops men fighting. I believe that's how world war ii was ended <laughs> just <laughs> just some really insipid karaoke but why did they even yeah. start fighting they why why did they just start ripping up the joint there's no actual like trigger point that means that they all start fighting apart from maybe men or maybe it's just because they're really fucking thirsty and they've not had a drink since they've been in the bar worth pointing out now just because i've seen it on my on my list is that it's incredibly white this film like crazy crazy come white. on now hannah it's of... got tyra banks in it <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Okay, apologies. It's got one one black person in it. That's that's a box ticked. Yeah. Um, it has an amazing scene in which she she's so honestly she's so insipid. I think she's got a mental age of about eight in this. Maybe that's why they were so worried about her going to New York then. Well, she walks around counting money, just like literally <laughs> just just counting money. But the bit where she decides she's going to seduce her boyfriend, oh God, Blake, whatever you oh, want to call him, right? Yeah. While dressed entirely in lilac. (laughs) She looks like a Marks and Spencer's mannequin. She's got so much lilac. Lilac pants, lilac bra, lilac top, lilac cardigan. Has anybody ever found that look attractive? (laughs) I think you'll find it's called tonal dressing. Uh, And no, to answer your other question, I don't think so. A lilac cardigan doesn't necessarily scream sex, does it? Again, I mean, if I'd known... Who am I to judge, Hannah? Hannah is wearing a lilac cardigan now. I think she's learned a few lessons from Ugly Coyote. Is it making you feel, you know... I've got a massive wide on, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good point. So when they talk about someone being bisexual and then they make another, I'm not a lesbian joke, and you're like, okay, that's only 20 years ago and it feels Mm. pretty outrageous that they were so outraged. Yeah. I've I've got another question. Is it, what is this? (laughs) Yeah. Why? Brookheimer obviously thinks it's feminist. He can jog on because he clearly knows nothing about feminism. But if that is the principle and it is supposed to be about female empowerment, I have a question about the storyline of why her mum gave up music. Mm. Because it appears that her dad, John Goodman, that the excellent John Goodman, what the fuck is he doing in this film? Yeah. That he holds himself responsible for the failure of her career because after she had a baby she decided she wanted to give up music and he let her yeah yeah i mean i just felt the waves of empowerment coming off you then (laughs) as you said that yeah can (laughs) you wow he let her well i mean that is that is literally that is if he's i mean even if you take away the let her as in he just said okay love right Yeah. yeah Right, that is actually feminism. He's got nothing to feel guilty about. What's the alternative? He becomes Ike Turner. Oh God! I think I would take umbrage with the let her, given that in that he wouldn't have a say at all. In like, it feels like he would be allowing her, and therefore he could have forced her into doing something else. It's terrible dialogue, though, as you pointed out earlier. This film has stuff in like. There's a bit where she goes, "Who am I kidding? I can't do this." People never say shit like that in real life. 
Who are you kidding, Hannah? Say, people talk like that all the time. <laughs> when, when people say stuff like, look who you're talking to here. Nobody says that <laughs> except in films. Nobody says it. I also do want to point out that this film, amazingly, I wonder if you spotted this, this film actually shares a cast member with Deadwood. Oh, hang on, hang on. Tell me. It's the blonde coyote who is played by somebody called, let me find it. She's The Tease called... is her stereotype. She's the Tease. Isabella Miko. She plays the character Cammy, And she is the prostitute. God, I nearly used Deadwood vernacular there, which would have got us cancelled. <laughs> um, <laughs> she is the prostitute that Frances Walcott kills. The one that oh. they ship out specially? Yes. Yes. The posh bird. She plays posh anyway, doesn't she? She looks like a little doll. She does look like a little doll. And she does in this as well. But, you know, a very different kind of Barbie. There's a brilliant scene that is ridiculous where Violet is very upset by something that's happened and she cries, but she cries whilst looking into the mirror. <laughs> It's amazing. Like, she really wants to amplify that sadness. So we get to see her cat crying twice. And now I, if I ever cry again, I mean, I think I've run out of tears now. But if I ever cry again, I will do so whilst looking into a mirror, just so I can feel really fucking sorry for myself. Yeah. I mean, I think she was... She's, I think they're all kind of dreadful, are they? Oh, Maria Bello's all right. It was billed as a feminist fable. And I don't actually really know what that means, to be honest with you. Because it does feel like make-believe, I suppose. But but where is the empowerment supposed to come from? Is it that they realise that their bodies are sexy, therefore if they dance on a bar, they can make good money? Because there's a bit where Maria Bello's character says to Violet, OK, you're hired five nights a week. And I just thought, that looks exhausting. Just watching 10 minutes of it, I was like, how did they do that all night? You'd need a lie down. You would. And also a really good washing machine. <laughs> yeah, which she doesn't seem to have in her really horrific apartment. Which is still quite big as New York apartments go. Yeah, I guess so. It's very dirty, though. Also, she, she moves into Chinatown where there are absolutely no Chinese people. Oh, yes. So in short, I loved it. I am uh, gagging to get off the phone from you so I can go and watch it again <laughs> right now. Yeah, I mean, it's horrific. I mean, question rated or dated? It's it's so dated as well as awful. Yeah. Yes. But was, it's, it's... was it ever not dated? Well, I don't know because I didn't see it at the time. So I don't know. It struck me as the kind of film that I just thought I will never watch that. I will never, ever, ever watch that. It was the kind of film that used to make me cringe at the representation of women, to be honest. And rightly so. I know you're not a Sex and the City fan, and it is absolutely... And by fan, I mean you don't like it. And it is incredibly problematic now, lots and lots of it. But I have watched it, this whole series, quite a few times, and it has so, so much more going for this. And I think what you raised earlier of, like, which came first... This feels like a really, really lazy rip-off of Sex and the City, which at least has the decency, while it still hasn't written brilliant, like, multi-dimensional female characters, it has the decency to have some cracking jokes in it. And this is just 
turgid. No, 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 Mickey, Mickey. This is a romantic musical comedy. Oh, sorry, drama. I forgot. I forgot comedy drama. Mickey, it's your choice next week so what super feminist thing are we going to be watching well now you say that and you say that as if to slightly mock what my choice might be but we're going to watch 1980s private benjamin starring goldie horn and it was a film that minnie noonan absolutely loved and it was a very strong female character i'm going to be watching this one nervously to be honest with you i think i might be going back and destroying my childhood Come with me, Hannah. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that it wasn't feminist. I was suggesting I just picked a load of shit. You've set the bar nicely low. <laughs> um, <laughs> you are welcome. Thanks. Standard issue for all women.